The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Last November, uh, I completed a two-year part-time program on the Heavenly Messengers. And uh, that's the topic that I chose to talk about this morning. The program was co-sponsored by Spirit Rock and by Meta Institute that sponsors the Zen Hospice in San Francisco. So we had about 85 participants in the program and five teachers. We had five one-week retreats and lots of readings and some talks in between. So with a mind and heart full of heavenly messengers, um, that's what I'd like to bring to all of us this morning. Um, As you very well might know, uh, the tradition says that when the Buddha-to-be was about 29 years old, he left the palace for the first time with an attendant and walked in the town. And he was very surprised and seemed shocked by some of the conditions that he saw there. For example, he met an old person. It's hard for us to imagine he hadn't met an old person before. He was living in a very protected environment. And then he met on the streets a person who was sick. And then, lo and behold, a group of people carried a corpse by him on the street. And um, I guess he talked with his attendant about all of this. Then he saw a renunciate, a wandering ascetic, who was very serene and he decided to follow the path of the wandering ascetic. And so he left the palace and devoted himself to spiritual practice. At that time in India, and still true today, spiritual practice is a very important part of the culture. And uh, so he had a context for it. And when he set out into homelessness, really, He was beginning his practice that would lead to his teaching, which we benefit from today. It's interesting, I think of him as leaving the palace out of curiosity. And I like the interpretation of this story that says, the four messengers that he met were really divas from the heavens who came down to prompt him into spiritual practice. And I like it because it's a bigger context and it has the sense of being invited and called and prompted. And that's part of our experience as well. Most of us probably meet the heavenly messengers in other people's lives, but of course we meet them also in our own. Uh, There may be family members who are old, for example, and that begins to introduce us to looking at what is the effect on our practice of these messengers. When we are with old people, either in our family or people whom we know, we see that their energy diminishes, their vitality might seem to diminish in some ways, but not in others. Some of us in this group might be involved in caring for an old person or in even making medical decisions about their care. So it's uh, an experience that's close to many of us. Sometimes we notice that older people can be quite peaceful and um, they can say it's a change in perspective. Uh, 
they're giving less attention to achieving and more attention to relationships and appreciation. And they might ask the question, what's important? That's a good question for us. We also know that aging can bring with it a lot of loss. There can be physical loss and emotional loss and mental loss and social loss. And that's a part of aging that we often experience firsthand emotionally and pay a lot of attention to. Most older people, even those who have been very fit, lose strength and flexibility. And some of the emotions that go with aging could be irritability or frustration, (coughs) maybe general crankiness. And there's also, very often, depending on a person's situation, great delight in being with grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they especially say, I don't have the full responsibility of caring for this lovely little being. And just kind of being amazed that the lineage of their family can have this new life in it. And they also have delight with family and with friends. There's an awful lot of uncertainty in aging. How long will I be able to do this, whatever it is? Will I have to move? Will I have enough money? What about my partner? How does our aging affect our relationship and we affect each other? Here's a great one. When should I stop driving? That's almost an indicator of aging in my experience. There can be mental losses as well. We all are aware of the loss of memory of names of persons and places and things. And it might be, did I lock the door? Or recently, someone I lived with said, am I getting dementia? Because she had forgotten something and it was a small thing. I said, well, you know, I don't think it counts. It was something about a date. And those are the losses and the anxieties that can come up with aging. And also people report that sometimes they really like sitting and looking out the window or sitting in the garden, feeling the warmth of sun, feeling the wind, watching the squirrels. So there's a heightened appreciation of the present moment that people say about aging. Of course, I'm talking about other people who age, not about myself. I'm only 74. (laughs) I'd like to read you a pretty extended quote from um, a New Yorker article in February 2014. Roger Angelo had written for the New Yorker often, uh, published his reflection called This Old Man. And I quote, I'm 93 and I'm feeling great. Well, pretty great unless I've forgotten to take a couple of Tylenols in the past four or five hours. A few notes about my age is my aim here, but a little more about loss is inevitable. We geezers carry about a bulging directory of dead husbands or wives, children, parents, lovers, brothers and sisters, dentists, and shrinks, office sidekicks, summer neighbors, classmates, 
and bosses. All once entirely familiar to us and seen as part of the safe landscape of the day. It's no wonder we're a little bent. Why am I not endlessly grieving? He continues. Recent and not so recent surveys confirm that a majority of us people over 75 keep surprising ourselves with happiness. Put me on that list. We've outgrown our ambitions. If our wives and husbands are still with us, we sense a trickle of contentment flowing from the reliable springs of routine, affection in long silences, calm within the light boredom of well-worn friends, retold stories, and mossy opinions. I love his expressions. Um, In November, on our one-week retreat at Spirit Rock, there was a panel of five or six participants who spoke about aspects of aging. And I'd like to read what one of them said. Again, just a short excerpt. He wanted to talk to us about identities, his personal identities in his life to date. Quote, A major part of my identity has been founded on being a high-level achiever in business, in academia, and in athletics. In business, my identity was the go-to person, the problem solver, the leader of high-performance teams, the turnaround specialist. I loved my work and was very good at it and felt a great deal of fulfillment from it. This worked in a sense, as it gave me the strokes my ego craved. But I did not know I was addicted to performing, and had no idea how it was negatively affecting me and my family. My version of a summary is when he was about uh, 57, he retired from his high professional job. And he said he spent five years looking for another one just like it, but couldn't find it because people told him he was too old and overqualified. And so then he did several other things for a few years. And then at some point he decided he was retired. So I pick up with his words now. In retirement, my full attention has been turned to the path of awakening. I have been able to deepen my Dharma practice. Deep contemplative inquiry into the stories, beliefs, opinions, and habits which have perpetuated my identities has revealed the fallacies in many of them. As a result, these identities are losing a great part of their power. I don't feel the need to prove myself now, and I am very tired of performing. Now I can allow myself to be more vulnerable and authentic. I don't feel the need to be so busy and active. I can spend more time 
just being. I have become more discerning of how I use my declining level of energy. And my impression during the, uh, the course that we took of this man, he was very energetic and very participative and very out there. And so as I and others listened to him with his profound reflection on identities, it was something of a surprise and led us to think about, hmm, what are my identities? What am I addicted to? How am I doing in performing? And so forth. And I really appreciate his... Um, talking about how his sense of identities has faded quite a bit. So um, listening to these two reflections, we can ask ourselves silently, um, how is aging a heavenly messenger? It's a good question. And I hope there'll be some time for you to comment on that later. So next we'll turn to the second heavenly messenger, which is illness. And I figure most of us probably have some experience of illness. It might be our own. It might be others. Some of us and our close acquaintances and family have a really extensive experience of illness. We're familiar maybe with injury and disease, maybe surgery. We take prescription drugs with their interactions and side effects. An orthopedic surgeon said in a public talk I attended, all drugs are poison. Oh, great, I thought, because I knew I was headed for surgery. (laughs) Illness can bring a lot of uncertainty, too. Is this illness or limitation temporary? Can anyone help me? What will happen if I have this treatment? What will happen if I don't? With experiencing pain, it can be really hard to think and make decisions or even to care about anything. There are losses and abilities to do things in sustaining attention, in seeing the larger picture. Does this person whom I love need more care? Do I need more care? Does this require moving to a facility? And then what about decisions that need to be made? Shall I pursue a cure? Shall I prepare for dying? So there's a lot in this messenger. Again, I'd like to read um, excerpts from a reflection, this time in the New, Yorker, the New York Times, and just a year ago. And you may be familiar with the author. The title is Oliver Sacks, On learning, he has terminal cancer. He wrote, quote, A month ago, I felt that I was in good health, even robust health. At 81, I still swim a mile a day. But my luck has run out. A few weeks ago, I learned that I have multiple metastases in the liver. It is up to me now to choose how to live out the months that remain to me. I have to live in the richest, deepest, most productive way 
I can. I feel intensely alive and I want and hope in the time that remains to deepen my relationships, my friendships, to say farewell to those I love, to write more, to travel if I have the strength, to achieve new levels of understanding and insight. I feel a sudden clear focus and perspective. There is no time for anything inessential. This is not indifference, but detachment. I cannot pretend I am without fear. But my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much and I have given something in return. I have read and traveled and thought and written. Above all, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet and that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. And Oliver Sacks passed away six months after this was published for us to read. Also in our uh, program together, there was a panel of people talking about illness. And so I'd like to read you what one of the participants, one of my friends, wrote about her experience of illness. It's so thoughtful. She said, 13 years ago, when I was 60 years old, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. One month after diagnosis, I was 80. I had aged 20 years in one month. Suddenly, without warning, I felt old, old. By far, the most difficult issue has been and continues to be self-image and identity. What is my function? What can I do? How well can I take care of myself? How can I help others? Am I still lovable? The loss of who you thought you were and who you thought you were going to be is a ferocious teacher. That's the aging, illness, death, and loss crucible. The Dharma has been good to me. I turned to Buddhism after I was diagnosed, recognizing it as a potential refuge and teacher. I had a lot of anger to deal with, and anger was just the beginning. I was preparing, as I was preparing this talk, this is my friend speaking, I told my friends, I can't do this. I am not a wise elder. I've read a lot of books. I've meditated a lot, but I don't have it together. I don't know much. 
it's still tremendously difficult for me to be with difficult feelings like loneliness and sadness and lack of certainty. I have meltdowns. I do drama. And yet, there is more awareness. I reflected on what has had the most impact, what resonated the most for me. Mindfulness, for sure, particularly mindfulness of the body. Taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Five Remembrances, a beautiful teaching. Self-compassion, definitely a work in progress. Compassion, gratitude. And perhaps the grandmother of all teachings for me at the moment, kindness. Kindness has been huge, both accepting and giving. I can do kindness. Kindness to others takes me out of self-absorption and into love. Kindness is all forgiving. Practicing kindness for self and others, a 24-7 project. And so we can ask ourselves, how is illness a heavenly messenger for me? When we consider the third messenger, death, most of us are relying on our experiences of other people's death, though it's not terribly uncommon for a person to have a near-death experience. What can we say about dying from this side of it? Hospice chaplains and volunteers and palliative care doctors and nurses and aides have the opportunity to see and reflect on death, as do family members when they are present to someone who is actively dying. Death can be seen as the ultimate loss of life as we know it, of relationships, of things, of wealth, of achievements and social status. For me, in my limited experience, the clearest thing I can say about someone who has died is that he or she is gone, really gone. Anything that we think about death, our beliefs and our hopes, depends on our experience of being alive in a certain place and time, immersed in our cultural setting, influenced by our family, forming and maybe reforming over the years our own thoughts. Again, there is immense uncertainty and unpredictability. Buddhist teachers who have extensive experience of being with people who have dying have often made a kind of comparison, a parallel between meditation and dying. And in one book by Kathleen Dowling Singh, 
the grace in dying, she devotes a whole chapter to this going back and forth. What's our relationship between meditation and our experience of dying? And she wrote, In intensive meditation with the adoption of spiritual practices, one literally offers oneself, one's whole being, to the transformative process. Nothing less will do. In the case of the transformation that occurs during the dying process, the disease itself ensures that one stays the course. Meditation, like nearing death, is a mental state of intense yet relaxed inquiry and attention. Meditation slowly and progressively purifies the ordinary mind, unmasking and exhausting its habits and illusions. By choosing the one seat or having been chosen by terminal illness, we at some point and to some degree begin to seize our grasping we begin to let go. Moving beyond the ego is moving beyond meaning defined by doing and more into meaning embodied by being. This is a painful point for many with a terminal illness who have always found their value in doing. And I can only mention briefly some of the other similarities and parallel points that she includes in her chapter between meditation and coming close to dying. They include withdrawal from the world, a time of isolation. Presence in the moment and mind-body awareness. Humility inherent in the recognition of our ordinariness. The practice of silence that nurtures and facilitates the transformation taking place inwardly. The mindfulness of breath. Transpersonal images, visions, and archetypes. Surrender as open receptivity to what is. Self-inquiry as we open to new aspects of our own being. End of quote. I was interested in her mentioning transpersonal images, visions, and archetypes because When I was sitting with my mother before she died, she was sitting in a chair in the hospital after surgery that had been successful. And my brother and I were both there. We'd been there in the afternoon and somehow we went back in the evening after dinner. And um, she was sitting there and she looked out in the distance and she said, it's so beautiful. I don't know what she saw, but it was a great comfort to me 
and the next morning she peacefully died. So we can ask ourselves, how is death a heavenly messenger for us? And now for the fourth messenger, a renunciate or a wandering ascetic. Here on the peninsula, we don't often meet a monk or a nun on the street unless, of course, they're coming to IMC. But we do meet spiritual friends and teachers, including authors. And we have incredible access to teachers worldwide through the internet. We also have meditation centers and retreat centers with teachers and the mutual support of practitioners. The Buddha's decision to leave everything and go forth into homelessness in order to be free of suffering leads us to reflect on our own introduction to Buddhist practice when were we first attracted? How were we first attracted? Who was our messenger? Or what experience was our messenger? How did we act on this attraction? How has our practice deepened over the years? Where are we now? We don't know. So how are teachers and other practitioners heavenly messengers for us today? We'll conclude um, the morning talk with the five remembrances from me on Guttara Nikaya. I'll read each reflection with a few moments for uh, silence for ourselves. During our workshop, we spent a good deal of time with these five remembrances. We formed two concentric circles and we paired up. And we took turns reading the five remembrances to the person opposite us. And then the inner circle moved one place to the right and we did it again. And during this extensive time, um, I guess I'd say I really got into it. And I also got into it when my oldest brother died and I was talking to a teacher on retreat at Spirit Rock and she said, do you know the five remembrances? This was about four years ago. And I said, no. And she recited them for me and I thought, oh, okay. So here they are for us today. There are, of course, different translations. This is the one we used in our Heavenly Messengers program. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death.
All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. So now we do have a little time for us as a total group to contribute your experience, your comments. And I'd be particularly interested if you can identify a heavenly messenger in your own life who's really guided you on the path to wisdom and compassion. And we ask that you use microphones for comments that you like made. Any other comments? or questions are also very welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm going to hope I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, bring the conversation out of topic or maybe where, where you would like to bring it. But since no one was raising their hands, I would just have a, I would say, a general, uh, maybe intellectual curiosity. In, um, um, I understand that you're a, a Catholic nun, so uh, uh, you know, I believe you're, you're Catholic as well as meditating and endorsing the kind of view that uh, just exposed here. I'm just curious to understand um, if you find any difficulties in combining the two uh, views, uh, and if so, how? Um, let's see. I would say that in my practice, I haven't personally felt any contradiction or stress in the two traditions of Christianity and Buddhism. I do feel sometimes a social awkwardness. You know, what if the Buddhists find out I'm a nun and the Catholic, do, you know. I'm a... And so that that is why I do say, you know, who I am, especially when I'm entering into a mentoring relationship with someone just so that, you know, we can be comfortable with that. Fortunately, I live in Burlingame in a convent with 25 other sisters, and in that particular place we have a strong uh, tradition of Zen practice initiated by a Catholic priest 30 years ago. And so when I moved, for example, to Maryland and to Nebraska, I didn't find that in the sisters' communities there, and so I'm blessed that way.
there are certainly differences, there's no doubt. Okay, what about your experiences and the messengers? <laughs> Thank you for asking your question. Yeah, I had some uh, comments on, on what you said, uh, especially about, you said what's important. People start thinking what's important. Um, and I do some work in the field, it's called coactive coaching. Um, and uh, so I work with individuals who are and, and kind of helping them understand what's important for them. And I have a coach myself who has been helping. And I, I realized that, um, so I, I, I try to find my values, what's really important for me. Um, and I also try to think, um, like, what's my high dream? Where do, I, where do I really want to be a few years from now? And, and I kept doing that. Um, I realized one of the best ways to do it is actually contemplating on the death because I've never, I always struggled. I was like, hmm, maybe this is important for me. And I, I am so confident that that's really what's important for me. But it's not until I, I started contemplating on the death, I, I, I realized, okay, you know, a lot of things that we think are important for us are probably not important. It's like the next shiny goal. And uh, then I went to a retreat um, on investigating emotions by Sheila Catherine and uh, who's the founder of, um, what is Insight uh, Meditation South, South Bay. Uh, so I was in Austin. and I was in, in the, So I was talking to her about this, and uh, what she mentioned is that um, she helped me understand that it's not actually contemplating on death, thinking that, okay, you know, so many years from now, when I die, what's important for me, like, think about it like you're going to die right now. And then what would be important for you? So that, again, kind of gave me a new perspective is, is about uh, contemplating on death as if it's, it may happen right now and doing it almost like on a daily basis. And I don't do it on a daily basis. But I realize that the perspectives change every time I think about it because it's not that I contemplate and I got it. So I, I just wanted to add that I, now I realize the importance of contemplating on a death as if it's going to happen right now and quite frequently, maybe like once a week or once a month <laughs> to, 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 to really find out what's important. So I wanted to add that. Thank you. Thank you very much. This will be our last comment. Um, I was raised by a mother who frequently announced to the four of us children that she to whom much is given, much is asked. And my particular castle, um, it was a time of the Camelot era. And so I heard that in a kind of a John Fitzgerald Kennedy way of giving. Um, And... I have lived for a long time with, with illness and death um, by personal circumstance. And it actually hasn't been until very recently, um, following a husband's death, the loss of another husband, um, a child's addiction. Um, but it, you know, these, these are um, pre- preparation grounds. And it was recently the loss of my cousin, the second to die in his family, all younger than I. So quite a shock. Um, 
that I suddenly heard my mother's words in a new way, um, in, an, in an everything way, in an utterly everything way, and learning how to put myself out again and again. And as you speak about the heavenly messengers, um, that other heavenly messenger called birth, learning how to walk these grounds of loss and to be alive, um, that's my cutting edge of the moment. Thank you very much. They go together. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Our time is up. I appreciate our practice together and I appreciate your kind attention.